welcome back everybody to Leaf Promotions Inside Podcast. I'm John Scanlon from Leaf Promotions and this week we have Chris from Field Manual. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And also you can follow us on social media at Leaf Promotions on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So let's get on with the show. Enjoy. Welcome back everyone. Today my guest is a man who's played in various bands for Leaf for over 13 years, making him the one person who's played over the longest period in Leaf Promotions history. From high energy post-punk to electronic alt-rock, lo-fi two-pieces to full band Americana, it's Chris Inslee from Field Manual. How are you mate? Hey up John, how's it, how's it going mate? All right. <laughs> were you aware beforehand that you were the person who's played longest for Leaf? Overall, I was, yeah. It's I was I was thinking that actually when um, uh, he sent me an email last night or the message last night and I was thinking was it like two thousand and six I think I first did a show with you it was over at Stockport somewhere when I was with Bobby Peru yeah I think it was two thousand seven I did a battle of the bands in the very early days and um, oh. yeah Bobby Peru were in that one flipping heck yeah I was I think it was our two thousand six or seven yeah, yeah. wow Mad. long time you done like about eight. <laughs> 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 I think I look a lot younger than I actually am. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. Are you still doing it yourself as well, which is amazing, you know? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's been a uh, yeah, it's been a long time. It's gone through a lot of changes during that period. Obviously, Leaf has changed from yeah from what started off as was as basically a hobby and a challenge to, to myself as whether I could do gigs to what yeah. is essentially a full time job now. So yeah. yeah, it's been a long while. It's been a long while getting there, but we've got there in the end. Yeah, a long way it continue. <laughs> thanks, man. Like I said, during that time, you've had hiatuses and swap bands and stuff. You've been, I think, in total, I think there's four four different bands you've played for me in. In order, it was Bobby Peru, uh, yeah. The Christophers, yeah. Pop Hysteria Victim, yeah. and now Field Manual. Field Manual, yeah. Did The Christophers actually play with you, did we? Yeah, yeah, just the once, I think. Once or twice. Well, once in the Baker's Vaults, if you remember the old Baker's. Oh, of course, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. No, we did a couple of times there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. many years ago. Yeah. Well, even that, even even that closed in like 2014, I think. So yeah, <laughs> we're going back there, really. So let's talk about your current band, Field Manual. For for anyone who hasn't heard you before, how would you describe your own style of music? I guess it's alternative Americana. It's kind of going a lot more southern rock as well. We've got that with this new guitarist we've got in Robbie. We'll say new. He's been with us since last summer, you know. And we're we're currently doing our third album now just keep writing and writing and it's so exciting at the minute for me personally as well because it's just it's it's kind of loosened up a little bit like we don't have Charles with us on the keys anymore live he still does some bits of recording with us but uh, hence why we kind of we got first we got when Charles left the live thing with us we got a, t- a chap called Denison who's from Sweden he was living over here with his wow. family and uh, lockdown happened so we had to go back to Sweden so Robbie did show an interest uh, Robbie Roberts at the first time we were looking for someone and then it kind of just fell into place really and he just came down for rehearsal listened to the tracks and he's just such a great player and it's fitted right in so he's been doing like lap steel slide you know everything and he's okay. just it's really I can sit back a bit more and you know concentrate on playing rhythm a bit more which I love anyway you know and it's just really opened the band up to being a bit more looser yeah it would still fit into that Americana style and you were kind of the only guitarist in the band before when Charles was in it he is one of the finest keys players around I think absolutely really is yeah yeah but when he had to take a back seat, obviously you've changed it up a little bit with a new guitarist yeah Um, how much do you change the sound in terms of feel it's kind of added to it I think because it was it was replaced because try- the only reason why we didn't get another keys player is because it's trying to find someone, you know, that isn't in like eight bands doing nine gigs a week, you know, and it's very, very hard. So I thought, well, initially the first thing that's going to cover that sonic area is acoustic guitar. So, you know, we got Dennis in uh, since before, obviously, lockdown one, and it worked really, really well. We did a couple of gigs, or maybe one with him, and it was working dead, you know, really, really well. So then obviously that ended with him and then we got Robbie and who started to do acoustic and then we just thought well let's just try it on electric you know and it sounded awesome it sounded really good and I was just like right that's it this is like this is where we should have been like three years ago you know type of thing and it's you know you get that sound in your head with stuff and write a song and I'll take it to rehearsals or you know show them a little clip of recording on the phone and it just comes together 
so quick and it's so fun. You know, we're just in rehearsals and I can do anything. And then, yeah, we just got the band's really, really good now. And, you know, it, it does miss the keys, but that'll hopefully be always there, sort of like on the recorded side. Charles had to take a step back, but I know he'll probably come, still come in as a session musician on certain tracks, I imagine. Oh, he does. Yeah, yeah. He was all over the second album. I and mean, uh, that was a good thing about lockdown in that respect, where we just finished all the recording all the main parts, all the vocals and everything. Uh, this is on Souvenirs, which was released October. And we could just finish off the bits and then we could send the tracks to him and he could record the parts and send them back to us, do a few different ideas and we could just put them together like that. So from that point of view, lockdown was quite a creative time as well. The quality on those on those first two albums is absolutely exceptional as well. The mixing oh. and the mastering is absolutely great on it. So that was long first to continue, yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, the first the first time was recorded at the Edge, uh, over in Alderley Edge, uh, which we've used a lot. And Mark Winterburn did the producing and production on that. And then he doesn't work at the Edge anymore, but he did do the mixing and the mastering on Souvenirs. So I kind of mixed it to a point where I was like, oh, this is great. And then you give it to Mark and, it, you know, you realise how bad my mixing really was. <laughs> it, just takes on to that, it just takes it on to the next level. Getting yeah, getting something that sounds good to your ear is one thing, but getting it to sound great and correct is is another thing. You know, going back to the edge, that's where we've just done the live from the edge sessions. I don't know if you caught those. Yeah, yeah, they're online at the minute. I know you've got some stuff on there. Is it on the? Is it on YouTube that one? Or is that the one that you did that actually went out on TV? The full one has just stopped streaming now. The full forty-five minutes set. The one that was hosted by Mark Radcliffe with the three tracks, uh, that's just gone on YouTube now as the full, uh, I think it's episode five. So if you go and have a look about, uh, at Live From The Edge with Mark Radcliffe, episode five, you'll see us with a band called The K's and there was Scant Regard who was on afterwards, who was really good because he was like Adam Ant's guitarist, so it's just him and a drum machine. And it's like, <laughs> one of three, and he sounds amazing, you know, so I was, um, yeah, that's so why I've been on after us that that was, it was quite a, it was quite amazing, really. Yeah, I'll have to check it. I've, I've not, I've not had a chance to check out any, any new kind of recordings or anything because oh, I've literally just been editing. I've been editing nonstop this podcast. Yeah, I bet you have. Weeks and weeks. <laughs> <laughs> So who would you say were your biggest influences? Is there anyone you're particularly inspired by? I've gone back like you always do with music. I always go back to, like with the Christophers when I was doing that, I was I was like coming out of Bobby Prue and I was like, what really excites me about music? And I went back to sort of like, because I was like eight, 10 years old and, and XTC were out and all those new wave bands. And that was really gave me a kick. And, and that's still there, but it, it, it is older music. It's like I'm getting really into like listening to more Canned Heat, listening to more Bob Dylan and listening to, you know, the Troubadour thing, you know, Canyon, all, all that, that whole sort of West Coast vibe, all that thing. I'm, I'm just relishing it, really soaking it up at the minute. I remember when, when Phil Manuel first ever came to play for me. It was like Thursday night in the Spinning Top, I think, a few years ago now. Mm. Obviously, I'd known you from different styles of bands, so I didn't fully know what to expect, even though I'd heard a couple of recordings. But mm. when I heard that you were playing kind of that old school Americana stuff, that was amazing for me because I'm a huge Americana fan and I don't think there's any similar sounding bands, at least in the Northwest scene, or very few similar sounding bands who capture that kind of Americana style that you guys do. I got I got hints of like Tom Petty and even like Batman Turner Overdrive and bands like that. You've got elements of all these kind of 70s bands coming through. Well, being a big, I'm glad you've mentioned that really, because I mean, being a big fan of Tom Petty and Springsteen and stuff, and it's very hard to be a band in the current climate, I think, doing that type of music. And it, it's all because I've always wanted to do that, you know, and it wasn't a case of, right, today I'm going to write a sound like this. And, you know, it was just, yeah. it just happened. I just wanted to write 
some stuff and came out that I had all these songs. A lot of them I had for years and years, you know, and I just thought, right, well, I'm just going to do something with these. I want something that's a little bit more freer, just a bit more cosy for me, I think. As, as a right. I think there's always, there's always something to be said for just playing the kind of music that you love because that always comes across it on stage, I think, and to an audience. If you're mm-hmm. genuinely enjoying the stuff that you're writing and playing, then de- yeah. then they'll get that in the feedback as well. So if, if you enjoy Americana and you play it well, it's always gonna yeah. it's always gonna do really well. I think in the last few years, especially Field Manual has, has built a huge following at, at my gigs, and you're one of the bands that I get kind of asked about the most who are currently playing because people there's a huge market for that. And like I say, mm-hmm. there's not too many bands going out and doing that style of music, but no. people love this era. It's it it is. It's growing, I think. There's a huge, like the American Association helped us out a little bit with the first album, not so much sort of like later. And it, it seems to be very, when you're an unsolicited band, should we say, with no representation, it's really, really hard. So you've got to kind of do some music that hopefully someone likes and goes, I can do something with this to help you out. And I'm sure we'll probably come up to this in another question later That's on. That. But it's, yeah, it, it's it's hard to actually be do this type of music and be current, if you like, um, because a lot of the bands that do get a lot of exposure these days, you know, from on radio and stuff, you know, especially mainstream radio, BBC introducing programmes like that, who have been massively helpful to me over the years, haven't really given us a nod and a wink yet with this. Yeah, I suppose, is, I suppose they tend to go for what's currently popular in terms of the mainstream charts, so they'll, yeah. they'll probably listen out for more of a modern indie vibe, which obviously we do a lot of as well. But mm. I think that can that can help you out, really standing out from the crowd, because I hope so. you, you, <laughs> you're unique in that sense, especially in the northwest of, of the UK. To have mm. an Americana sounding band is pretty rare. Yeah, and I think you know, there's, there's quite a few bands out there, you know, and, well, I suppose there's not too many UK bands that I can say have inspired me to sound like we do you know it's always American bands so it's bands like you know even Ryan Adams you know and, and, and War on Drugs and stuff like that the and Kurt Vile you know they just take it somewhere else so it's not it's not all the country as you'd think in a traditional sense you know like pop country or anything like that it's it's the the more edgier stuff like you say yeah. like the west coast it's almost just got an ed- more of an edge to it and that's where I've always liked about most Americana, actually, the, the exciting side of it. Well, you're actually married to um, Helen Warford as well, who's a regular gig player for Leap Emotions. Do you think yeah. that um, being married to an American has influenced your taste in music? <laughs> yeah, well, she's a real thing, and I'm just like Yeah, well, I mean, she's, you know, I'm utterly always uh, kind of floored by a, a talent, and she just doesn't stop at all never have done even you know even had our little charlie nearly eight years ago believe it or not you know i remember she, she was doing gigs up until she couldn't reach her guitar you know <laughs> she was like <laughs> you know and then like a week later after charlie was born we were back you know I was, I was back to gigging and stuff like that and it's just it's that was something else that was really important to us without going off on on a, on a tangent here but you know to having kids sometimes stops a lot of people doing what they do and i yeah, yeah, definitely. I shop here all the time. Or you know, I stopped playing guitar when uh, I had kids and everything. And to me, it was like, no, it must continue. You know, and it's. Uh, <laughs> I, think it's important. I was the same. That I, I have a daughter as well, and I was the same. Yeah. Lots of people saying, "Oh, you, you won't be able to put the gigs on anymore." But I was determined to find a way to make it work. And touch well, wood, hopefully, so far it's going well. Yeah, well, my thing was with it was like, well, you can't give up your, your job when you have a kid, and why? Why would you want to give up music or, or something? You know, and it's. I know some. It's not mainly down to um, income, which is, you know, it's hard to do when you're making music, isn't it? But it's... I say you, should, you shouldn't have to put one passion or one project to one side just because yeah. you're starting a family, I don't think, anyway. You should oh, no. hopefully be able to, to make time to do both. And you totally. hear loads of stories about people who, who put what they love to one side for, obviously, the love, the love of a new family member, kind of at a detriment to, to working on their own music in the long term. And then, obviously, when that child grows up and, and isn't as bothered to hang it out with you anymore... They're, they're lost for getting back into, into what they enjoyed beforehand. It made us do more. It made us go, right, you know, when we're doing pop hysteria, victim. Literally, I think it was, child was born in, uh, yeah, in, in the August. Come October, November, we were out gigging. And it was just a case of, we have to do this, you know, and be a parent as well. And, That's uh, it. There's no need to sacrifice them being in a band. It's just working no. out. It's just more of a scheduling thing and more of a timetable thing, working yeah. things around, obviously, your family time as well. And it's very important to have, you know, the little lad growing up around that, you know, growing up around the guitar shop and, and stuff like that as well. You know, it's, uh, and he's, 
ultimately he's, comes out quite musical anyway because of that. Yeah. So, well, weirdly, my next question was going to be this. You own the <laughs> finest guitar shop in Macclesfield. <laughs> I can't think of a better way outside of gigs to meet musicians. Who are the biggest names you, you've ever had in? Have you had anyone famous who's, who's coming to the shop yeah. and checked had, out some guitars? Yeah, Noddy Holder from Slade. He's, he's quite a regular. Um, oh, amazing. And then as a chat, we told me some stories. He was in actually last week, week before, I think it was. You know, I don't use the word legend lightly. You know, uh, you can't throw that word around, but he really is. You know, and you think about what he's done in his career, and then you, you kind of, he comes into the room you're studying, and all of a sudden you're in the same timeline. It, it's really weird, you know. <laughs> I always, yeah. th- I always think Slade are a massively underrated band because they just get tarnished with the Christmas one at Wonderbrush. Yeah, but they have so much more to them than that. that it's just absolutely. the massive disservice to think of them as just that band. I mean, most of the sort of like the rock bands of sort of like the early 80s were, were, were massively influenced by Slade. You know, we've had Johnny Marr in here as well and uh, Billy Duffy. We've had him from The Cult, Glenn Tilbrook from Squeeze. We've, we've had a fair few. People that I would have, oh, Midjord, he was brilliant. Actually, he came in kind of not long after we first opened and he was great to talk to. <laughs> sat in there for like 40 odd minutes and we just chatted about music and he was such a lovely guy, you know. Well, that's it. I can't think of mu- a much better hub outside of actually going to live music events than just being around a place where people can come in and play guitar all the time. It's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice thing. It's just like a living room in here as well, which is, I do have my songwriting in here. Um, in between the quiet, you know, when it's quiet and stuff like that and stay late. Because, yeah, because it's, it's a great place to, to kind of write music as well, really. So how did you first get into original music? Obviously, we I, I first met you when you were in Bobby Peru all those years ago. And, and at that time, I remember really clearly, because I was, as well as doing gigs, I was getting this kind of band management as well. I was managing a band called Astro Band. Shout out to Astro Band if you're listening to this. But we played like an old day, or they played an old day, sorry, in, where was it now? Witchwood in Ashton, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you guys were headlining, and I'd already heard about you from other bands saying, you've got to check out this band, they're absolutely unbelievable. And there's a real, there's a real feeling about Bobby Peru in those days that you were going to be the next, the next huge thing, the next signed band. Yeah, I, um, I, I came off the back of that with with Bert, who um, ultimately started the band, and we started to do some tracks together, and it kind of just went on from there, really. You know, that that particular band, yeah. So, how did you originally get into original music in the first place? What was your first band? Oh, going back to, I think, going back to about 1991, I was in my first band. I'd say, and that was my proper like in foyer in coming into Manchester and we had dead long air. We used to go to the Banshee and stuff like that. And I was a goth, you know, basically <laughs> sleeve ball rocker type of thing, you know. It was one of them. Um, <laughs> but me, me and my friend, you know, we we learned guitar together to to first last and always by Sisters of Mercy, which is no mean feat. It's all on like twelve string, you know. So so when you're you're learning your, your instrument, you have to play to songs and and stuff like that. When you get your first bands, you always playing a song together that everyone knows, you know, type of thing. But yeah, you just you just want to play the stuff that you like yeah, to inside. Um, I'm thinking those teenage years are always the formative years for getting oh, into finding out what style of music you're actually into. Yeah, oh totally. And um I remember doing a song, writing a song probably about 1988-89 and going around some guy's house and recording it on his four track. And that's probably the first time I ever did anything. And I can still kind of remember there was two songs we did. I can I think I can vaguely remember one of them the crux was i wasn't really good at te- um, still not very good at theory guitar theory just like if it makes it sound well then it and it's it's done me all right all these years you know with some of the bands yeah. I've been in the tour and I, th- I think most guitarists who play for me now haven't actually gone out there and got a lesson they've got hold of a guitar and taught themselves basically that's it you know and and i think there's something to be said for playing a lot of other, some people's songs because you do learn a lot of different techniques a lot of different chord structures 
And I've done that more in latter years where I've tried to suss something out and go, ah, oh, and incorporate into my songwriting. But I think it was really because I didn't really know the name of some chords and I was really messing up. Because when you play a cover, you've got to do it good or not at all, really, you yeah. know, or completely change it. And then by which time you might have just written your own song. So I just thought, well, if I write my own songs, no one knows gonna know if I'm gonna mess them up. And I quite enjoy it. You know, that that whole connection between writing a piece of music and for me, vocally, that came way later. I mean, if someone had told me when they started Christmas in 2007, if I was gonna be singing, I would have been like, never, never gonna do it. <laughs> it was just something, I, I did that basically because I just didn't wanna find a singer. And I thought, well, grab your balls and jump basically and learn to do something new. I, I quite like it, you know, uh, learning new stuff. And that was that part of the thing for me as well. Well, that's it. Like people have spoken before on this podcast about when they're, whether they're in covers bands or originals band, they get so much out of playing their own stuff because, like I say, you are putting your your own art out there for other people to, yeah. to check out. And it just means so much more to you than playing yeah. someone else's music. And it is, you know, it is the, the shortest straw, I think, when you because a lot of places, you know, it's changed now because... I suppose during the 90s, you know, if you played a pub, you had to play covers and we never did, you know, when we always used to go for the night and day venues and stuff like that, where they just took on original bands. And I don't think I've ever played a cover for, I think I had to do a Talking Heads cover once, I think, the last 10 years at a gig, because we were asked to when we did that. But that's, as far as I can remember, that's like the only cover. And it's not because I don't want to, I just think, I just enjoy writing so much. And I think by the time you've kind of worked out someone's song, remember the words, put all the energy into that, that, that song's already been done and, and, and put out there, you know, and if people want to listen to cover versions or, or to that song, then you can do it in a lot of ways. And, you know, as you know, Helen, why she does a lot of kind of obscure covers sometimes, and she always makes them her own, which I find it hard to do if I was doing yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's the real trick. If I do listen to covers, I prefer to listen to other people's arrangements of covers rather than a direct copy. Because like you say, you can just go off and listen to a CD or a, or a, or a vinyl and listen yeah. to the original. And it's very rarely bettered by, by a standard pub covers band. Helen's take on covers is very, very different. And absolutely. she adds her own kind of charm to it, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely not putting anything down for, for people who do that at all because, you know, hats off to you. You know, because I just don't have the balls to do that. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> um, I just, I really do love writing music. You know, it's that, like I said before, it's that combination of when you get little chord structure and then you get this other melody that comes out over the top. It's almost like it is a eureka moment. You know, and is I, I can't compare that to anything else. It's it's um, it's quite magic when that happens, and even better when you find out that's not been done before. You know, even though everything sounds familiar these days, and there's certain songs you go, you know, that's got to be something else. Yeah, there's only so many kind of chord progressions you can have before it ends up sounding like something else. So yeah, if you can put your original take on something, then it's quite almost quite rare these days. Yeah, but then you think, well, everything's been kind of regurgitated to a point somewhere. I mean, there's regurgitating something that something sounds a little bit familiar, and there's like I think sounds can sound familiar. If do you know what I mean? Like, but ripping off actual notation and melody to a point where it is a song, is something else, you know, because you can you can do right. a song and, and it has the air and the sound. Even like guitar tone and stuff or some oh, of the vocals yeah. and stuff like that, totally. it, can all, it can all be reminiscent of other songs that you've heard before. Yeah, people will go, oh, that's something. And I've always said about song and sound is massively important. And people might go, well, what kind of is? Yeah, but you can write the best song in the world, but if it doesn't have a sound, you know, it's like, then it's kind of lost. That's that's the whole thing, even down to production. You know, all those old classic songs over the years, you know, whether it's anything from the 50s, 60s, 70s or 80s and 90s, without a certain sound to the, the vocals. That's why Nick Cave sounds like Nick Cave, you know, and that's why, I don't know, Bob Geldof sounds like Bob Geldof or whoever, you know. Yeah. It's because I, they, think, I think I Phil think Manuel managed to, to replicate that as well. Whilst it is original music, it still harks back to those mm. similar sounds, and you kind of feel like it's music that you know without it being yeah. a copy of anything, if you know what I mean. It's, it's well, reminiscent of that era because of like the yeah. way you play it, the arrangement of it all. Mm. So whilst it doesn't feel like it's directly imitating someone, it still has that feel of the era. Yeah, it's massively inspired, you know, because you do, you, you'll hear a band and you'll go, oh, that sounds great. You'll kind of want to listen to the guitar tones or listen to how the vocals are produced or the type of snare or, or whatever is being used, you know, and you, you know, you do kind of interpret that 
because that's just how we do as a musician. And I think anyone who writes songs or, or, or plays in a band will actually say that, you know, and it's quite an obsessive thing to the point where it, it can slow down processes for me sometimes. Going back to what you said before, I think people always think of covers gigs as being a relatively recent thing with a surge of pubs and venues being more bothered about tributes and covers than ever. Yeah. But it has been around for so long. It's just certain venues have supported original music and some, some venues just have supported covers. Obviously, I'm much more in favour of the original stuff, but I can see a place for both. It's considered to be that original venues are kind of dying out. But loads yeah. of venues in Manchester are kind of shutting down to make way for new student housing and stuff like that. And it feels like the, the original scene is more impacted than any of the major venues. And all the major venues are putting tribute acts on, which is a, a huge shame, in my opinion. It is, you know, but if you look back again, I, I keep going back in time. I'm not saying back then was different, but it kind of uh, better, you know, because there's so many things out better these days. But the term pub rock was a thing. You know, you'd go down to your pub and, and go see the blockheads down at the at Putney, whatever, in, in London or whatever. And that's just how it was. And that was the Dublin Castle is a, is a perfect example of that. It was a pub that's kind of turned into a music venue over the years because it, it could put bands on and original bands that made bands quite famous in, you know, especially the ska scene and stuff like that. Well, I say, um, whenever I hear about any of the Northwest bands going down to London, they're always playing in Dublin yeah. Castle. Yeah, <laughs> it's just one of those places. It'll be the Blossoms next, you know. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I like to think it's already it's already developed today at this point. I've been doing it for long enough now. Um, I'd like to think I'd like to think we had the same kind of reputation as that place, but I think it could take a while longer. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think it all went already there personally. You know. Well, thanks, man. I see things coming out in the moonlight. I see things staring out in the moonlight. I see things around the world Come the morning lights I see things around the world Come the morning lights That I can't forget It's going up and down around itself Makes no sense of it all But what am I supposed to do When I just can't Obviously, you've been involved in the unsigned scene for a long time now. What, in your opinion, is the best thing about being part of the unsigned scene? Ooh, the best thing. That's a tough one. There's no kind of, there's no rules, is there? And it, it is always, I don't kind of know now what is the, the goal, if you know what I mean. It's like years ago, you'd be like, you'd want to get signed, you want to get this, you want to get that. And you can't even get on top of the pops anymore because it doesn't exist, which was everyone's band thing in, back in the day. Which, you know, obviously you remember, I'm not sounding like an old farter, you know. But it's like, <laughs> no, you know, yeah, like, don't even need a label these days. So what's what's all that about? You're, I think you're exactly right. The end goal would always have been to get signed to a record label and get on TV. And now none of those things are prevalent, yeah. really, because yeah, so much more of the industry is DIY, uh, is DIY. There's all sorts of different management deals and distribution deals you can get. You don't have to just sign to, like, EMI and then that's it. You're, you're famous. No. No, that's it. And and the whole monetary thing about it has changed these days, like selling a million units of something. The days of, I'm not sort of gone, but the underground's gone underground again, which is fab because the underground scene's always been huge. It's always been buoyant. It's when you get to the mainstream and you get to the top, where do you go from there? You know, I think half the, the enjoyment of being in a band writing songs is just getting out there and trying and writing the stuff that you like to play and, you know, you, you want people to like it. Well, that's it. I was talking to Far Cordwell in the last episode of this, mm. but he was basically saying, there's no harm in just enjoying the level that you're at. Why can't you just enjoy the unsigned scene for what it is and then make that as, as strong as possible? And then off the back of that, once you start mm. attracting big crowds, the natural step would be that you just go on to the next level. You become the signed band or you get that label interest. There's no harm in saying we're an underground band or an unsigned band. I'm just loving that part of it. Well, yeah, and be good, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
and just perfect your craft and, and play that yeah. in front of people. Yeah, I don't think it's you know it's this. Is it saturated? Is it overcrowded? I don't think it is because we're just a lot more aware because of social media. I mean, you can go on and find any band these days online on Facebook or, or wherever, or Bandcamp or whatever. When MySpace first came out, that was a great place because all of a sudden you could be seen to a lot of people, and that was brand new. That was like breaking out of this box of where, you know, you're a half-struggling band doing the, you know, your normal gigs in Manchester or wherever. And then all of a sudden, MySpace happened and people took interest. You gained a few fans. You got more gigs out of town because of it, because someone liked how you sounded. I mean, I used to find most of my bands in the early days when MySpace first came out, it was such an easier way for me to be able to access. Like so many more areas, so many more bands, like immediately without, I mean, I don't even know how I would have found bands in the early days like what do you do put like an advert in the paper and say do you want to come and play at night and day <laughs> it wasn't that long ago we're only talking about 98 96 to 98 you know we used to yeah. take our flyers down to like the night and day and you know photocopy a load and take your, your cassette down that you recorded off the desk yeah that was, oh yeah we used to get sent oh we used to get sent cds all the time all yeah. the time hundreds and hundreds of cds that most yeah. of them are pretty terrible, but you have to work through these things. That, that's it, you know. That's and but that was part. That's what everyone did, wasn't it, back then? You know. But it was that's great it. when you did a gig and someone liked you, and you got another gig straight away on the back of that or something. I, I, I actually totally forgot about all the flyering I did back in those days. It seems ridiculous now. It seems so like outdated. Though, since you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you very rarely see it anymore because it is so time intensive for very little benefit at the end of the day for flyering. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it's like now, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, you post a picture of your lunch on, on um, social media and 63,000 people have seen it before the end of day or whatever. <laughs> it feels saturated because, like, your news feed on Facebook can become, like, white noise of new bands. Absolutely, yeah. Everyone's trying to get the new release out there. Everyone wants to let you know when they're gigging. But you see so many of these posts that you don't really pay attention to any of them because it's just, it's just constantly in your face all the time. So yeah. to stand out as an unsigned band is arguably easier and harder than ever if you know what I mean yeah you've got to keep that pace up as well you can't with social media you know you, you can't do too much because people just got to get annoyed and stop looking at you but then you yeah, can it's do a fine line it's a fine line between spamming people and being able to get your content out enough there for people to actually take notice of it yeah exactly there's a fine line you know you, you don't want to do too little to make people think you're just going to be forgotten about that's probably my half of my trouble I do take it probably a little bit too seriously but I've, ne I've never not been in a band since I've been 18, you know, and it's I've always gone from one band to another to another without really any gaps in between. I think that's obvious in the, in the quality of the bands that you have as well, like your passion for it. You obviously work very hard at, at working on your craft. Uh, well, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> so on the flip side of that, what's the worst thing about the unsigned scene, in your opinion? It probably is probably to do with that, with the... The, about the saturation thing because it's probably always been there we've just never been that aware of it because we haven't been able to view it like we can now via social media I think being sort of like unsolicited band with no representation again is probably the hardest part of, of being sort of like unsigned if you like or something like that because it just makes it hard to get gigs because people especially when you want to play out you know more and more out of town you know, a lot of places don't say, well, we don't, believe it or not, taking bands from outside of town. Um, yeah, it does happen a lot. I think I think a lot of promoters are concerned that in terms of selling ticket numbers and stuff, bringing in bands from out of town will affect their either yeah. ticket sales or attendance in at gigs. So it's more yeah. of a monetary thing. We take on touring bands, but we try to, um, to specialise in mainly Northwest mm. because, well, two reasons mainly. A, a lot of the time, touring bands can't actually bring people. And secondly... It's just good to support your local scene. There are a lot of there's enough yeah. talent on the step to not have to go and, and use mm. touring bands, really. Yeah, but exactly. You know, bands do like to play out of town as well, don't they? You know, and it's like I had I always had an idea, but if there was like a venue in say I don't know Nottingham that's got a nice little get local gathering every Friday Saturday night to get a coach to go over to say Stockport to do a get you know and they, they both swap over on a Friday night, a couple of coaches and you know stuff like that. I always thought that would be a good premise to do something like that. You yeah, that, that is something we talked about before, like gig, gig trading, if you will, yeah. where you can bring one fan base to another town or whatever, or yeah, you can you can swap gigs. It's a great way of doing it, actually. It's kind of an un, un, underused tool. Yeah, absolutely. But um, so I think the worst the worst thing about it really is trying to get gigs. You know, is more than anything. I think that's the the hardest part. And um, to some point, 
being ignored. Again, what we're saying about the, the Americana thing, people just go, Americana? <laughs> but it's a massive scene and you've, it's got to be seen from the correct angle, uh, which I think is massively understood and totally massively underrated as well. Uh, absolutely agree, yeah. I wish I had more Americana bands, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it can be quite hard to fit <laughs> you guys in with, with a lot of the other bands that I have on because a lot of them are so different. So curating a night, if you will, is finding bands that, that fit in with that balance. But yeah, I'm, I'm used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> so in all the time you've been doing it, is the one experience that um, a gig or booking a gig, which you would class as the best, just a great moment to be part of? Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, I've had some really great gigs like over the years, playing Bowery Baldwin in New York, touring the States and played like Shepherd's Bush Empire and, and this story over the years and just, just done some really big gigs and then some awesome small gigs. And I don't think there's one massive pinnacle gig that I could say a, a small one was better than a big one or a big one was better than a small one. Because, yeah. you know, when you play in a gig and you get a really good crowd, it doesn't matter if, if it's like three people, 30 people, or 300 people or whatever. Yeah. Do you generally prefer like the smaller, more intimate gigs or would you rather be playing kind of festivals every weekend? Well, festivals are great fun, aren't they? Again, that's something else that's quite difficult to get on because they've always seems to be booked up like a year in advance and everything it's not about the following festivals it's, it's always kind of bands just know the right people they happen to know the guy who's putting the festival on or they know a sound engineer or it's all about who you know rather than what you know yeah yeah i mean festivals are great to do aren't they but uh, yeah small gigs you know you just can't be a nice little room together you know all closely knit in there yeah <laughs> so i'll probably take smaller gigs over huge ones i think well, that's good for me because I've, <laughs> I've quite a few small venues. So, I mean, like I say, you always get um, really, really good crowd reception whenever you come down yeah. to stuff. But I say you're one of the bands that I kind of get asked about more, more than most. Yeah. Um, people genuinely look out for you guys coming down whenever you're on the posters. So, long yeah. There, Hopefully, you won't get too big and you won't ha you won't have to play the bosses anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll so, all play. Thanks, man. <laughs> is there any particular gig that you remember just being an absolute nightmare? Well, this is quite probably interesting actually because this was at a big venue it was at the academy one in manchester and i was with the christophers and we were supporting a fairly big band there people don't know the christophers at the time it's like me a bass player on the drum machine it's quite a lo-fi uh, setup and yeah. this uh, they were doing the, the academy one out at the time and the sound that was coming out of the pa was going right to the back wall which is at the time was breeze block there was nothing there <laughs> that was bouncing back louder than the monitor could possibly go at a slight different time. So if oh, you're okay. started off on doing like a beat going, dish, 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 it was come back going, dish, 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 you know, and we were just, we, we had to stop and start two songs in front of a lot. Yeah, yeah, that must be a real nightmare for a band which is primarily beat based. Um, <laughs> still gives me a bit of anxiety when you listen, when I think about that, you know, I'm thinking, you know, someone shouted out, yeah, shit, you know, and, and it was, it was a bit of a moment where it was like, and I got a shock off the mic as well, I remember. It was, okay. not, I, I was mortified. We got to the end of it, we did our thing and we got to the end of it and I, I felt mortified. I mean, yeah. I think it's about like crying when you come off stage. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. It's totally yeah, out of hands. Done, but we went to the big hands after. And I remember yeah. stood there and um, I think it was Kelly and Tom Hingley, uh, Kelly, Tom's wife, uh, we knew from Musicians Union. They came down to see us actually. I've not met Tom before. I've met him several times since then. He's such a nice guy. And, and he was just like, you know, it was really good. And a few people came up to us at the bar and said, oh, don't worry about it. It was sounded ace. You were great. They're different and everything. And I was like, well, that's that's great. That's, you know, so it kind of cheered me up and and, and have sort of a, a professional guy there at the time to say, don't worry about it. It is what it is. It's live music. I find that quite often, though, when I go to, like, big arena gigs or big stadium gigs, the sound is normally not perfect. It's just yeah. for the size of the venues they are, obviously, they're going to have natural quirks in terms of echoes and stuff like that. It's another yeah. reason why I prefer the smaller venues. Um, as long yeah, as you've exactly. got a decent sound engineer, you just you hear a much more accurate representation of what the band's supposed to be like most of the time. And you can never sort of, like, expect your stage sound to be fantastic. It's not... It's unless, just... unless, you're playing, unless you're playing a leaf kick, of course. <laughs> Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, when, when all that stuff, you know, it's a big, big venue and your sound's coming back to you louder and out more out of time than your monitors. 
Oh, it was just so bad, so bad. I mean, he just couldn't kind of perform, if you like, you know. In, in the yeah, people, people need to go and check out the Christophers t- to see how beat-based it is, to, to really get the full effect of yeah. how mortifying it must have been on stage to hear it all come back to you. That was, yeah, and that was, I mean, we've had, because uh, Phil, obviously Phil's actually been with the band, I think, 10 years this year, because he started with the Christophers, stopped doing that about six years ago, and then um, to, to do this, basically. Yeah, so Phil, our drummer, he's been with us. He, he joined and took over the drum machine, basically. And he now is the drum machine. So <laughs> yeah. He's another exceptional musician in Field Manual as well. Not only is he a great drummer, but he does great backing harmonies for you as well. He really, really adds so much to the whole band. He's great, Phil. He really is. Just got every single respect. And he's, he's such a techie as well, you know, like he, we go into rehearsals and we record every rehearsal, everything. It's just like, it was just set up, ready to go, you know, and that's all down to Phil and doing all that makes it really easy for us. Whenever I'm setting up, he's always trying to help me out, kind of tinker with stuff to make it sound better. He's yeah, always, uh, he's always he, involved he, in the sound side of it. He just loves it, doesn't he? He does. He, he gets involved, Phil. You know, the whole band with Field Manual, and I'm really spoiled with... The musicians, you know, with uh, Andy on sax and Mark on bass, who I was in bands, I was in a band called Roma in the 90s with Mark um, mm-hmm. from about, oh, 94, 95. I was in the band with about six years and now he's, he came back with us and I think from 2017. So he's, Mark's been with us for like four years now. So I know Mark for a long time and then um, now we've just got Robbie, Robbie in and he's slotted in, like I said before, absolutely brilliantly and it's just... I'm spoiled. When you see you guys live, the musicianship really, really comes across. Right. Every, I mean, every, every single time I've seen you, I think you must have played for me about 10 or 15 times now, and it's the, the quality is always there live. Oh, brilliant. I know, thanks for that. I mean, it means a lot. And it is, it's, it's, uh, it's hard because, you know, you can write a good song, but getting the sound of it, and the sound's all down to the band, coming with the ideas, and they, they actually make it happen. And I'm really fortunate to be in among them, playing with them, because they're all, all great. So in all the years you've been doing it, obviously you've played with a lot of other acts over the, I was going to say many, many years, but that makes you sound quite old, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <Have> you know. <laughs> Who would you say were the top three unsigned acts or bands that you've ever seen live, whether you've got to play with them or whether you've been out to see them at a, a different event? Unsigned. I can pick a couple of current ones. There's a band we've done a couple of gigs with called Old Ben. Have you come across them? I've checked them out. I think we, yeah. we were due to book them, I think. It's yeah. either during COVID or around around the time when it was all going yeah. horribly wrong. I think, I think we actually, just... yeah, we were looking at booking them with you guys because I know you're friends then, obviously. That's right, yeah, we we, need, we must do that. I know they've just started rehearsing again. It's Chris Birdsall, uh, you know, is just a magnificent songwriter and talk about sound. He's just got it in, in his voice and the way he plays guitar. He's just got that connection between voice melody and, and he's, he's just brilliant he can really he's got something special what he's kind good. of genre is that for people who haven't heard of it's it? kind of it's it's ultramericana I'd, I'd put it in it's got that alternative vibe about it kind of drive-by truckers vibe band of horses you know that type of thing really big sound but really gentle at the same time as well 
and his voice is just huge. You know, he's, he's phenomenal. He was the, for those who don't know, uh, he was like the original bass player in Virgin Mary's way back in the day, you know, which I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning because they're, they're a great band. Um, yeah, the Virgin, Virgin Mary's always get mentioned by people who have lived or from Macclesfield in every episode yeah. so far. <laughs> yeah. And then um, James Bedolph Jr. and the Brand New Mornings. I was actually couple of years just doing um playing guitar for James and we started this brand new mornings band and it, it was kind of you know a little bit stop start with band members and stuff and and then lockdown came and everything we did a few gigs here and there and it was just fantastic so they still continue they've got the band together now and James is really one to watch I mean he's again amazing songwriter amazing voice just Got the Nick Drake thing down, amongst loads of other things, you know. He's just, he's a passionate guy, and it does come out in his music. He's brand new mornings, so definitely one, one to watch. And then uh, my friend Ashley, Ashley Sherlock, which I, you've probably heard of him as well. Yeah, he's uh, played for me a couple of times, actually, yeah. Yeah, and he's great. He's a young lad. He's really doing sort of like the blues thing really well. He's, you know, the, the blues rock crossover type of thing. Yeah, it's got really, um, a really unique vocal as well. Which I really oh yeah, like about. yeah, he's really into Jeff Buckley and and stuff like, that. and he can tell, but he's you know he's got the modern sensibilities as well, and he can yeah. do it. So I'd I'd say as unsigned acts go and bands, that they're definitely the three that spring to mind. Yeah, uh, Ashley's Ashley's drummer actually is a guy called Danny Rigg who was in Federal Charm. Um, I believe when, so, when yes. they were quite a big band, and he also used to do sound at Leaf gigs at the Baker's Vaults. So oh, <laughs> Small worlds. Yeah, very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're at, we're at the part of the show where mm. I ask three completely stupid random questions that you haven't heard before and you're not prepared <laughs> for. So uh, oh, you're ready for this bit, mate. It could be tricky, it sounds. Okay. <laughs> is, it a one, is it a one-word answer? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see how long we've got left on the recording. Okay, question number one. You're stranded on a desert island and you can choose one person you've never met in real life to live out your life with. Who do you choose and why? Oh, that I've never met. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, Helen. I love you dearly, but Zoe the Thingy Bobs from um, New Girl. What's her name? Oh, Zoe. Uh, Zoe Dashanel. Yeah, she can yeah. sing, and she's really pretty. <laughs> so let's just leave it. Let's <laughs> hope Helen's not listening to this. <laughs> you got the edit button. There. <laughs> All right, here's a good one. This no, one went really, really well on our social media. Last time we asked it, loads, loads of people uh, responded to it. Who is the most overrated band of all time? Stone Roses. Stone Roses. That's a good shout, actually. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is it in particular that you don't write about Stone Roses? Um, well, I, I think the, the, the culture thing was amazing. I was kind of in college in Didsbury when I was all kind of kicking off and leaving school. And you can't dislike the culture and the time. I just think... They're kind of one album wonders, really. I mean, you know, they can't knock it. People are going, oh, yeah, well, what album have you, you know, and all this stuff, you know. Yes, <laughs> they're massive globally or whatever, but I just don't get it. Never did it for me. There are definitely questions around Ian Brown's vocal as well, to be fair. Ooh, but, uh, yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, there are loads of there are loads of people you wouldn't class as, uh, like, typically, classically trained vocalists who have done no. really, really, really well in the charts recently, so... I've always I'd say it was, I think it's more part of the era than it ever was around uh, oh, like a volume yeah. or a large back catalogue of the music. I don't think it's, it's it's aged well. And I've always kind of been one to go for more non-vocalist type of bands, you know, like your Nick Caves and, and your, your Bob Dylan's. But then you turn around and go, well, Bob Dylan did have a good voice and he could do it. And he had his thing and so was Nick Cave. Yeah, but they're, just they're, definitely, not... yeah they're definitely a lot more stylized. I think. I, I don't know this question. You could say that. Ian Brown was doing his original thing, but I don't know. Well, I, can't, I do kind of agree on that. <laughs> they were a thing that spearheaded a really big thing. And I guess without them, music would be different. And, and Especially and, kind of Northwest music, the whole yeah. the Manchester area, they were pioneers well, of that. Still put a dog leg in things, hasn't it? But I shouldn't really knock Stone Roses because I've always thought that music and culture have gone hand in hand. You know, when you've had big, like in the 50s, you had rock and roll. 60s, you had your Beatles, all the Mersey Beat thing, all the massive bands that happened. You had Psychedelia, and then the 70s, you had Glam Rock, you had Punk, you had New Wave. In the 80s, you had New Romantics, and again, you know, New Wave. Then you had Acid House, Baggy, including Stone Roses. The 90s, you had Britpop, Grunge. 2000s, we get nothing. And if you look back, they've all been culturally based things. 
Yeah. So here's me knocking Stone Roses, I'm sorry, you know, but uh, they, they were part of a culture which was massive, but musically, I'll have to put them in Room 101, sorry. <laughs> That's fair enough, yeah, I understand. <laughs> okay, question number three. This is quite a morbid one, this one, are you ready for this? Okay. Would you rather know when you're going to die or how you're going to die? Oh, when? Yeah. Surely if you, if, um, if you know how you're going to die, you can avoid that. Well, yeah. Avoid the situation. Oh, well, there is that, I guess. But maybe there's factions where you can't, you see. I suppose uh, in some ways it's quite nice to have a timeline so you can kind of plan things out a little well, bit better. Yeah, you know, yeah. someone you said, right, you're going to be like 83. I'd be like, right, bring it on, you know. And, right. yeah, yeah, you don't want to find out, like, you're going to be 55 <laughs> and then planning just the next few you years know, down the line. I'd be like, I'd be <laughs> like Shh, right, what can, what can I do? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I always ask this, this one last question and um, every single week I ask this question what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to a new artist or band starting out just keep going keep trying write a song better than your last one that you like to hear because you're going to be stuck with those songs potentially for a very long time and <laughs> uh, you know you're always going to write something better to, uh, than your last song um, you might not write something even if you've got a song that you don't like now keep it put it in the bag, a year's time, you'll come back to it and you'll go, that's really good. And you'll, it, it'll be in a different timeline. That's why I try never to throw any little ideas away because you know, something about three years might pop up on your the little memory notes on your phone and you'll go, wow, I needed that right now. So no, you can always, you can always re rehash it and come back to it. Can't you? I always yeah. think that about bands who, who get famous from like the first album and then seven, eight albums down the line, they're still being asked to play those yeah. early songs and they don't, necessarily represent how they feel anymore or how or how, how they expect the music or want the music to sound that's so, it. Yeah. encouraged there's a lot of discouragement in in music i think just because you know you're expected to do it all before you're 20 you know and it's not i mean some of some of my mates you know i think one of them you know was 38 and and he got a really big break with the band it, it catapulted on to this day with 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 work with some really big acts and names so I wouldn't want to be 21 making music right now, knowing what I was doing at 21 then. I was learning. And there's some great musicians now, like, like I was saying about Ashley, he's like, what, 24, five, something like that. And he's writing some amazing music. You know, he's going to be one of these fortunate ones who's going to be even better in, in like, you know, by the time he's 40. And he can look back and go, you know, I was doing some really good stuff then, but I'm doing even better stuff now. And I think that's uh, quite a valid point, really, just to just, just keep doing what you do. Like I said really early on, it's important to just, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours as well, just play music that you're passionate about doing. And that primarily is probably stuff that you're just into listening to. I think as long as you do that, you're probably more likely to always enjoy stuff that you release. If you're writing stuff for the sake of what you think is going to be popular for other people to hear, but you don't necessarily like it, it's never no. a, bad, a, good, a good road to go down, really. No, I heard, uh, it was, I think it was um, Guy Garvey said in an interview years and years ago, before they were became Elbow as we know them, they're doing like funk. I think they were like a funk band or something. And he said they got signed by Polydor and I think they got dropped. And then they just started coming out with this sound and just going, we're just going to do our own thing, you know, and it all changed. And he said, you know, keep doing what you're doing because a window will come around for you, for your sound. And that's where all the greatest bands have come from. When you take your own thing and you do it differently. We're all inspired by music, different bands and different sounds. But when you make it your own, that's when your window comes around because someone's going to latch onto it and go, you know, that's going to be big. My favourite album, actually, or the one I like the best, is um, is actually the first album, and yeah. Sleep in the Back, I think it's called. I think it's the strongest one, and you can tell that they're just doing what they want to do. It's not yeah. particularly, like, it's not what you say commercial music, really, but the reviews at the time, I remember I was, I was reading some review in some magazine, and they were basically saying, this is nothing else sounds like this is coming out now. And that yeah. really made me want to listen to it. And you can oh. tell that it's just the music that they wanted to make, which makes it outstanding for me. Yeah. Oh, it's a brilliant album. And it's like the Doves, Lost Souls, you know, when you hear that album. Yeah. And you kind of, not I was ever massive fans of either, but, you know, I, I did listen to the Elbow album quite a bit. And and when I first heard Cedar Room on the radio, you know, and you just hear that and you just go, you yeah. know, oh, that's I was, what... I was literally listening to that track the other day and I was thinking exactly the same thing. Like, it's a real yeah. standout, standout one on the album, that. It, it's, it was, that whole era was decent for kind of people shying away from what was in what, what was selling loads of records. I think 
yeah but kind of pop pop and r&b was was really making waves but other bands were just saying now i'm going to make what i want to make and if people yeah. don't buy it, they don't buy it but <laughs> that's it we think it's good so yeah oh that's one more thing about what's bad in music these days haircuts there's no decent haircuts i mean i can't talk because i don't have any apart from on my chin <laughs> and but, i can't talk either because i've had the same terrible haircut for you. everyone's got brass haircuts yeah but you mean <laughs> Everyone in bands look really cool, you know, like a bit different. Everyone's got prospects. <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I mean, everyone. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Sorry, John. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen your hair for a while. You might have it down to your, your knees by now. No, it's the same quiff that I've had for generations, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, any upcoming projects? What can we expect to hear from Field Manual in the coming months? Um, well, we do have two shows. Hopefully that nothing gets put back. We've got the blossoms with yourself. Yeah, on twenty third, I think it is of July. That's, that's, yeah, right. that's actually my first gig back. It wasn't meant to be originally, but it is now my first gig back. So. Oh, real. Let's um, hope it's done. That'd be great. That. So we've got the twenty, and then we've got the day after in Northwich at the Salty Dog. So um, we've got two back to back, which is really good. We're going to be the, the the set that we did at the Edge. We've got the video from the Edge, which we're free to do with what we choose with now. So we're going to be doing something with that. Whether or not we do it, give it away free, just put it out as general promotion stuff. But um, we're going to do something with that over the coming months. And just recording the next album. We're about seven songs in, recorded, well, kind of demoed now. So it'll either be an EP or a full full album. But um, the, the songs are just sounding great and the, the rehearsals are sounding great and it's that exciting. And yeah, and, uh, yeah I'm happy. <laughs> uh, so where can we find you on social media? What are the links? Right, we've got uh, we've got the usual Facebook, which is um, uh, facebookthinks.com slash uh, slash field manual, or if you just go to fieldmanual.band, that will take you straight to our Facebook page. And then we're on Spotify. Again, if you type in field manual, field manual band in, in any search bar, you'll come up with the albums, Sunday Streets, Souvenirs. It's, it's on literally every platform and we do have hard copies as well, which will be coming yeah. out at gigs with us. <laughs> which I do recommend buying because it is, like I said before, one of the best produced albums by an unsigned band that I've heard in years. So. Amazing. Loads of people, loads of our regulars have bought it and they, I know for a fact they literally listen to it all the time. So uh, that's probably something pretty special there. Everyone who, uh, who has, and, you know, and, and again, for, for supporting us, um, you know, sometimes we don't see it, you know, and it's uh, for all those people that do play us and come out to see us and what, and what have you, you know, we're largely humbled. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on, mate. Thanks for having us, John. It's been a pleasure. I've been looking forward yeah, to this. Yeah, it's been a nice chat. So, yeah, it's been too long. Yeah, it certainly has, but uh, another couple of weeks and um, we'll be up there in the Blossoms having a Guinness. My first That's Guinness it. since last time. <laughs> Fingers crossed Boris doesn't push anything back again, but yeah, check our social media for upcoming gig dates. First gig yeah. back is 23rd July with Phil Manuel, so check it out. Look forward to it. And I'll speak to you again soon, mate. Thanks very much. Yeah, John. See you, mate. See you later. Bye. Bye.
So that was Chris from Field Manual. Really, really good guest to have on. Really hope you enjoyed that one. Don't forget, these episodes drop every single Wednesday. Please like, follow and subscribe wherever you listen to the show and follow us on social media at Leaf Promotions on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Hopefully catch you next time. Bye.